Uh, we sent this out this week, but we wanted to just make sure we're communicating it. We've uh, changed the dates for our soccer camp this summer. Uh, this summer we're going to be hosting a soccer camp with a ministry called Ambassadors Football uh, because most of the world calls soccer football, um, so that's what they're called. It's not American football, it's European football. Um, so we'll be doing that, and uh, the new date for that camp is July 18th to the 22nd. So that's going to be Tuesday, July 18th through Saturday the 22nd, and that camp is for kids ages uh, 6 through 14. But then older kids are, are welcome to help, and uh, we'll be asking for lots of volunteers and hosts for coaches and, and things like that. Um, but that camp is now July 18th to the 22nd, if you want to mark that in your calendars. And then if you would be interested in hosting a coach for that camp, we bring in uh, coaches from all over the world. Um, and so part of our role as a church will be to host those coaches. If that's something you'd be interested in, you can let me know. You can fill out a Connect card. You can send me an email. Uh, my email is on our website uh, or contact the church with the information in the bulletin. Uh, but if you are interested in hosting a coach, then you'll host them from Sunday, July 16th to Sunday, July 23rd. So you'll host them for a full week and have a couple of days in there of, of prep for the camp and things like that. So just make note of that. If you've, if you've written down the, the previous date for the camp, that date has changed. The full week is now uh, July 16th to the 23rd. The camp itself will be July 18th to the 22nd. And uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we will have more information about online registration and things to hand out and uh, stuff for the details for that camp. So uh, be sure to take note of that. And then uh, be, take note of our website, weymouthchurch.com. Sign up for our email list, list get the semi-weekly uh, Weymouth Weekly. I try and get that out every week, but some weeks I forget. Um, so sometimes it's a semi-weekly email, but most weeks it goes out. So you can sign up for that at weymouthchurch.com. You can also download our Church Center app. You can scan the bulletin with a little QR code to get that. Stay up to date with things there. Um, and just uh, if you have any questions, again, come find me. Come talk to me. be happy to talk with you answer any questions you may have. Um, so uh, with that business out of the way, let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship. And it's been our pattern uh, each week to just take a few moments in silence in the quiet of our own hearts uh, as we prepare for worship and also as we enter into a season of preparing our hearts for Easter. Uh, we want to just take some time, take some quiet and silence in your own heart to prepare your hearts for worship. So let's do that together now. Please continue in prayer as I read these words from Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning as we enter into this uh, season now of preparing our hearts for uh, the celebration of Easter, of Good Friday, 
Uh, Lord, we just pray that as we enter this season that, um, that you'll help us to turn away from our sins, that you'll rebuke us not in your anger, that you'll uh, answer our prayers, that you'll hear our cries for mercy, that you'll save us for the sake of your steadfast love, that you'll remind us of how you have worked out this salvation, how you have heard uh, the sound of our weeping, you have heard our plea and answered in sending your Son to come and go and die and rise again, and that in his death and in his resurrection, we have a living hope that will hold us secure no matter what uh, heartbreaks or challenges or fears or temptations we face in this life, Lord. So help us to live out of that hope, Lord, and help us to worship you, praise you in response to your steadfast love in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please stand and sing with us.
to read from Peter, 1 Peter 1, a couple of verses here, 4 and 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new births into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Be seated. Ooh, be 
me to it. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to invite any uh, kids now to come on up. Kids, fifth grade and under, come on up, have a seat on the steps. Do our time in the catechism here, New City Catechism. Uh, oh, 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 we're going to do it. Yep, we're going to do a boy's side and a girl's side. Saw it coming. All right, welcome, guys. Good morning. How's everybody doing this week? Having a good week? Good, nice. All right, well, I have something in my hand this morning. Do you know what this is? Paper, yeah, what kind of paper? Sticky note. Yeah, sticky note. It's kind of sticky right here, right? You want to feel that? You want to feel a sticky I note? Feel. You want to feel? Okay, here you go. Yep, proof it's, it is, in fact, a sticky note. Yep. I, um, I didn't get to feel the sticky note. You didn't get to feel it? All right, pass it back so Stephanie you can feel it. It's very important that everyone feels the sticky note, apparently. So what, do you, what kind of things do you use a sticky note for? Exactly, right things, stick them on stuff. I use sticky notes sometimes to write things down uh, so I remember them, so I don't forget them because I'm getting older and my memory's starting to go already, which is not good news. Um, so yeah, so sometimes you write stuff down, stuff you want to remember, you stick it on your desk or on your whiteboard or whatever, and on your bulletin board or on my head, thank you very much. Um, right, so you write stuff down that you want to remember um, because it's, it's easy to forget things sometimes, right? Um, but God, he... he um, God is perfect, right? God is all-knowing. God has infinite wisdom. He doesn't forget things except for the things that he, he chooses to forget or chooses not to bring to mind. And I want you to keep that in mind as you read our catechism question this morning, which is question number 25, um, and it's this. Does, does Christ's death mean that all our sins can be forgiven? Yeah. And Yes, good job. Very good. And the answer is yes, because uh, Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sin. God will remember our sin no more. So God is perfect. God doesn't, you know, he can't forget things. He knows everything. But what this catechism question is telling us, as we've been talking about Jesus, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, we've been talking about how Jesus, he went to the cross, he paid the price for our sins. He's fully God and he's fully man. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for us on the cross. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, because he paid the full price because he bore all of God's wrath for our sins, what God does is he takes our sin, and it's like he takes it and he crumples it up and he casts it away. He throws it away. He takes it out of his mind. He remembers it no more. The Psalms tell us that God, he, he takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far, right? That's an infinite, you can't measure how far away that is, right? God takes that and he takes our sins out of his mind. He chooses not to hold them against us, not because of what we have done, but because Jesus fully paid the price for our sins. He fully bore God's wrath for our sins. And so what, what brings us forgiveness, what, oh, thank you, you brought it back. That doesn't quite work, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, the opposite of what I'm trying to say. But, uh, but it, what the Bible tells us is that when you trust in Jesus, because he's paid that full price for your sins, that God chooses to remember your sins no more, you can have forgiveness, not because of anything you've done or I've done, but because of what Jesus did for us in the cross. Does that make sense? Make sense? Sound good? Any questions? Nice? All right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll go on to Children's Church here. There you go. You got that? There it is. All right. We got it. We got it in the end. Um, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you that... Even though we've sinned against you, even though we've broken your law, we've rebelled against you, we've worshipped other idols, that you sent your son to pay the full penalty for our sins on the cross. That because of his death and because of his resurrection, you 
uh, choose not to remember our sins. You choose not to hold them against us. You choose to cast them away as far as the east is from the west. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us, this love that you've revealed in Christ, your Son, our Savior. So help us to trust in him and find forgiveness, not in anything that we do, but in what he has perfectly done for us. Uh, Help us to trust him and to share this good news of forgiveness with other people, that Jesus has paid the full price for our sins to bring us into your family. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to go now to Children's Church. We're going to go follow Mrs. Martin. And then uh, the rest of us will stand and we'll sing another song together.
Good morning, everybody. My name's Jim Martin. I'm an elder here. Uh, the reading is going to be from Mark 6, 14 through 29. <clears throat> King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Another said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he bowed to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. <clears throat> Lord, we... Uh, we're so thankful uh, to be here together as your family and community. Thank you for this building. Thank you for allowing us to gather together. Lord, help us uh, to hear your word that we're so grateful your voice is so accessible from. Help us to um, learn and apply to our lives what we hear today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for reading that. Uh, we're continuing on here in our, our series in the, in the book of Mark. Thanks to, to Russ for, uh, for opening up the Psalms with us last week. And, um, and we'll, we'll get back here with, with Mark this morning in Mark 6. Um, so as I was, I was reading this week, I was thinking about how uh, it's become a common trend if you've watched TV or movies in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, increasingly common trend is... Uh, movies and TV shows that tell stories in a non-linearly way. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when you watch a movie or watch a TV show, you see how they, they don't tell their story always in the order of how things happen. Oftentimes they'll use things like flashbacks or flash-forwards to make their story more interesting or communicate some thematic idea that they're trying to show. Um, the show Lost, if you remember the show Lost was really big on this, right? They did a lot of flash-forwards, a lot of flashbacks. 
Um, they didn't really stick the landing in the end, um, but I don't, you don't want to I don't want to get going on that this morning, but um, they use flashbacks, they use flash forwards to tell a story, to communicate something about a character, something about the greater theme of the story that they were telling. And uh, I thought about that because we see something similar happening here in Mark chapter 6. Here we have an example of biblical non-linear storytelling. Remember that Mark is a narrative, it's a historical narrative, it's a, a gospel that was written um, to communicate the historical story of what really happened in the life in the ministry of Jesus. So it's a true historical account. But Mark also gives it to us. God recorded his revelation for us in the form of a narrative, in the form of uh, a story. And so we're, we've been going along through this story in the book of Mark. And uh, where we left off in chapter 6 was Jesus had just sent out his disciples. He just sent out his 12 disciples, his apostles, to go and uh, cast out demons and heal people and proclaim repentance. And then now in the middle of that narrative, Mark, he interrupts the flow of his story to give us a biblical flashback, an account of what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this important figure in the book of Mark who opened the gospel, who prepared the way for Jesus, but has kind of fallen into the background. Here in these verses, uh, Mark pauses in his narrative and inserts uh, the account of what actually happened in the arrest and execution of John. And by including this flashback, what Mark is doing is he's, he's uh, interrupting his own narrative to show us from the account of John's arrest and execution to show us this big idea, this main point that proclamation includes confrontation, which can lead to execution. That's the idea we're going to be thinking about together from God's word this morning, that proclamation includes confrontation, which can lead to execution. Now, see exactly what that means. We'll look at it by looking at two things this morning. First, by looking at John's confrontation, and then secondly, at John's execution here in Mark 6. So first, John's confrontation in verses 14 through 20. So as we said, Jesus, he had sent out his disciples. They were out traveling around, healing people, casting out demons, doing ministry as Jesus' representatives. And in verse 14, uh, we're told that Herod heard of it, that Jesus, uh, as he sent out his disciples, as they've been ministering, as they've been healing and proclaiming, as Jesus' representatives, the name of Christ, the name of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, has been becoming more and more well-known. More and more people in the region of Galilee are becoming aware of Christ to the point where Herod, the, the ruler of this region, he has come to hear about Jesus. When we talk about Herod here, we were talking about Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch or the governor of Galilee. Basically, he was uh, commissioned by the Roman Empire, by Caesar, to rule over this region, the Jewish region of Galilee. He ruled on behalf of the Roman Empire, but even in this high position, he had begun to hear about Jesus. He had begun to hear about this man who was going, who was teaching, who was performing miracles and casting out demons whose disciples themselves were uh, given the authority and the power to do miraculous works and proclaim repentance. And so this growing awareness of Jesus' ministry, it leads to widespread questions about who Jesus is. And this is a theme we've seen in Mark's gospel, this question of Jesus' identity. It's coming up again and again. Who is this guy that can do these things? This is a question that the people in Galilee were asking. It's a question that Herod himself begins to ask. 
Some people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead or Elijah or one of the prophets. And Herod here in Mark 6, he falls into the John the Baptist camp. And this introduces a recollection, a flashback of Herod's own experience with John because Herod was the one who had arrested John. Herod was the one who had sentenced John to death. He says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so what Mark does is he introduces a, a flashback, a side note, to tell us what happened to John the Baptist. Because the last we heard of John in Mark's gospel was in chapter 1, verse 14, where we read that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And so Mark's gospel, it opened with John the Baptist. It opened with him preparing the way for Christ by preaching a baptism of repentance, of turning away from your sin in order to find forgiveness. But then as soon as Jesus uh, shows up on the scene and he's baptized by John, he's sent out into the wilderness, and then uh, once he returns to Galilee to begin his ministry, we're just given a note uh, that after John was arrested, Jesus began to proclaim. And so we're just given this note about John that he was arrested. We don't exactly know why he was arrested yet. We don't know where he was arrested, what that means. But what we know is that after the arrest of John, that's when Jesus began to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. And so here in Mark 6, Mark is, he's filling in then the account of what happened to John. He gives us this flashback to the circumstances surrounding John's imprisonment and death. And he tells us that it was Herod himself who had sent for and arrested John, and he did so for the sake of his wife Herodias. Herodias. And the reason for it was that Herodias had been the wife of Herod's half-brother Philip. And so we kind of get into some, some first-century soap opera territory here, right? Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, uh, but Herod had fallen in love with her and taken her to be his wife. And John the Baptist, who was a prophet, who was a man of God, a man of truth, he, he heard about this, and he confronted Herod over it. Because it says in God's law, in Leviticus 20, 21, that if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. It is impurity. And so as a prophet, as a, as a prophet of God, John the Baptist, he couldn't ignore this unlawfulness, especially on the part of someone who was supposed to be ruling over the people of Israel one who was supposed to be ruling over uh, God's people, one who likely knew the law, who was aware of the Jewish uh, rules and, and customs and laws in the Old Testament. And so John, he confronts Herod. He speaks truth to power. He says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, when we were again introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1 of Mark, we were told that he was going around preaching, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He prepared the way for Christ by going around and calling people to repent, to turn away from their sins. And here in, in John's confront, confrontation of Herod, we see that, as one commentator put it, even those in positions of authority were not free from the call to radical repentance. For John, it didn't matter how much authority, how much earthly power or status you had. His mission was to come and call people to repentance. Because all people needed to hear this message. All people needed to know that they are sinners. They need to turn away from their sin to find forgiveness. That was John's mission as a prophet, to prepare the way for Christ by proclaiming radical, radical repentance even in the halls of power. 
And this proclamation of repentance then, it included confronting sin. It included confronting unlawfulness, even of those in power. His confrontation was part of his proclamation. It was a key aspect of it. And we see in Mark's gospel that John, he wasn't the only person to proclaim repentance. We saw in chapter 1 that after that note about John being arrested, that Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts to proclaim repentance. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. So what? So repent. Repent and believe the gospel. And then just before this scene in Mark 6, we're told that as the disciples were going around ministering, they too were preaching repentance. They too were calling people to turn away from their sins and find forgiveness. So John wasn't the only person who, uh, should, who was calling people to repentance. And it's actually striking, it's actually significant that it is right after the description of the miracles and the preaching of Jesus' disciples in Mark 6, it's right after that that Mark inserts this account of John's imprisonment and John's execution. This narrative about John, it's sandwiched in the middle of Jesus sending out his disciples to proclaim, and then his disciples returning in verse 30. This was not an accident by Mark. This was an intentional uh, structural choice to place this narrative about John in this context in which Jesus' disciples have been sent out to proclaim repentance and before they return from this mission of proclamation. By inserting this narrative here in this scene, Mark, what he's doing is he is linking the character and the consequences of John's proclamation with the character and consequences of the proclamation of Jesus' disciples, of all people who are called to proclaim repentance and faith. He's saying that the character of John's proclamation, the consequence of John's proclamation, it won't just be lived out in the life of John and the death of John. It'll be lived out in the life and in the death and in the ministry of all who proclaim the gospel. And so there's something for us to learn in the confrontation of John and the proclamation of John. Because what he experiences is normative for what all believers will experience. Maybe not in the exact same way, maybe not with the exact same details or the exact same results. But Mark is trying to get us to see that just as John's proclamation included confrontation, so too does the proclamation of all who preach the gospel, who share Christ, who proclaim repentance and faith. Our proclamation also, it will include confrontation. As we go and proclaim Christ, we will uh, at some point be confronted with sin and idolatry, and we will need to call it out. You can think of it this way. Uh, I've never been known to be the greatest driver in the world, right? So my wife has, has let me know on numerous occasions, sometimes when I'm driving, I drift to the right a little bit. I don't know why I do that. Maybe it's because I'm just a lopsided person. I don't know. Um, but sometimes I drift to the right. And so in order for her to, to call me out on that, in order for her to call me to repent, to turn away from that tendency, she first has to point it out, right? She first has to say, hey, man, you're going too far to the right. You're going to kill us. What are you doing? Um, right? She has, to, yeah, she has to confront the issue, the problem, in order to call me to turn and go in a new way. Her proclamation of, hey, we're going to die. Stop that. It includes confrontation. It includes confronting the error, bringing it out into open, calling it out. And similarly, if we're going to proclaim the same message that Jesus and John and his disciples proclaimed, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that people should repent and believe the gospel, then that proclamation is going to include uh, 
confrontation. It's going to include confronting the sins and the idols that keep people from hearing this message. It's going to include confronting the idolatry all around us, the sins all around us, in order to show people the truth and the hope of the gospel. Uh, back in 2017, in 2017, Tim Keller, he uh, gave a really important uh, lecture at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, and in this lecture, he talked about how to have a missionary encounter with Western culture, how to have a missionary encounter with Western culture. And in the lecture, Keller, he said that a missionary encounter uh, with culture, it's not withdrawal, right? It's not fleeing from the culture. It's also not hostility. It's not trying to attack or take over the culture with political or cultural power. He also said that a missionary encounter, it's not uh, assimilation. It's not becoming like the culture. A missionary encounter with the West, it's not withdrawal, it's not hostility, it's not assimilation. What he does say in the lecture is that a missionary encounter is one that confronts, converts, and calls out the corporate idols of a culture. As we seek to share and proclaim the gospel, as we seek to have a missionary encounter with the world around us, there will be elements of confronting, of converting, of calling out the idols around us, of doing so in a gracious way, and doing so from within the frameworks of where people are at, from within their worldviews, from within the ways that they approach the world, their postures, taking the time to learn and see where they're coming from, and then challenging and confronting those idols showing a better way, showing uh, the idols that we're blind to so often because they're all around us. A missionary encounter will involve confrontation. It will involve uh, calling out the corporate idols in our world. But this is really, really hard. And this is painful. And this carries with it a cost. It carries with it consequences. As Keller goes on to say in the lecture, he says that a true missionary encounter will involve both growth and suffering. He says that if you're engaging with people and you're only seeing growth, you're probably not really confronting their idols. You're not really confronting sin. But he says if you're only ever seeing suffering and pushback, you're probably not uh, actually explaining the, the joy of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Or maybe you're not confronting from within a person's framework. Maybe you're confronting in such a way where you expect them to have your moral or spiritual or cultural framework, which if they're not a believer, why would they? So we're called to confront, but we're called to do so with the hope and joy of the gospel, expecting God to bring growth, expecting God to reveal places of spiritual hunger. But we also do so knowing that there's going to be hostility. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be pain. Keller says that one mark that you are having a missionary encounter is that there is conflict. There is persecution. It's not something we should be as surprised by if we're proclaiming God's word with a proclamation that includes confrontation because part of proclaiming the gospel to a lost world involves graciously and humbly uh, calling out confronting the sin and the idols that lie at the root of our corruption and so i bring that up because uh, we see john living out this kind of missionary encounter this kind of prophetic proclamation here in mark 6 as a man of truth, as a prophet, he's not afraid to speak the truth to power. He's not afraid to call out sin and idolatry where he sees it, even against someone in authority. And so regardless of the cost or the risk, John, he proclaims, and his proclamation includes confrontation. 
And there is a cost. There is a consequence to this confrontation because uh, John confronting Herod had led Herod to have John arrested, to have John thrown in prison. And Herodias, Herod's wife, she held a grudge against John. She wanted to put him to death. There was a consequence to this confrontation. There was persecution. There was imprisonment. But for a time, Herod, he protected John from Herodias. He kept John from being put to death because Mark tells us that Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. See, Herod, he couldn't ignore John's righteousness. He couldn't ignore John's holiness. He couldn't ignore John's spiritual character. And being somewhat of a superstitious person, Herod was fearful of harming a man of God. He was fearful of doing something to hurt John because he saw so clearly that he was a man of God, that he had the spiritual righteousness and holiness that comes along with uh, being a prophet. Herod was also strangely perplexed. He was strangely perplexed at John's teaching. He was strangely pleased by it. Even though John was calling him out, even though John was telling Herod things he probably didn't want to hear because of God John's character, because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, Herod couldn't help but be perplexed, be strangely pleased or interested in the message, the teaching of John. So he would go and hear him and listen to him. And this reminds me of 1 Peter 2, 12, where uh, Peter writes, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter there, he's writing to believers who are facing persecution, who are having people who are coming and speaking against them. And he says, hey, let your conduct amongst them be so honorable that even as they're speaking against you, they can't deny your character. They can't deny your, your life. It would actually lead those who are speaking against you through seeing your good deeds to actually glorify God on the day of his visitation. You see, what was so powerful about John's proclamation, it wasn't just the words he said. It was the character. It was the righteousness with which he said them. It was the life, the character that accompanied his words and his proclamation. His character, his holiness was so much that even the man who imprisoned him was wary, was fearful of harming such a clearly righteous person, made him even interested in what John had to say, made him even perplexed and pleased by this teaching that was calling out his sin, that was calling out Herod's uh, immorality. And here's an important challenge for us in the church today, because we may get really excited about the idea of confronting culture. We may get really excited about the idea of calling out sin in the world. And that's part of our calling as a church is to call sin, sin, to confront the idols all around us. But as we do so, as we embrace this proclamation, this confrontation, do we have the character to back up the confrontation? Is our conduct so honorable that even if people disagree with what, they, what we say, even as people are speaking against us, do they see our good deeds and do our good deeds lead them to glorify God, lead them to take what we say seriously, lead them to question and wonder and be perplexed by the things we have to say. Do our lives back up our words? Does our character back up our confrontation? Because much of the pushback we see in our world today, much of the pushback or the persecution or the, or the hostility the church receives, a lot of it comes from the fact 
that so often in the church we are strong in confrontation, but we are weak in character. We are strong in confrontation, but we are weak in character. We are quick to call other people to live up to standards that we don't meet ourselves. We are quick to call out the idols all around us without examining the idols in our own hearts. And so our hypocrisy, it undermines our message. People hear our words, but they don't see our good deeds. They don't see how we love our neighbors, how we care for the poor, how we meet one another's needs, how we love and serve those around us. And all that's not to say that we have to be perfect, right, in order to proclaim, in order to confront sin. Peter's not saying we have to be perfect here, but it does mean that as we confront the sin of others, the sin and idolatry in the world of, around us, we need to be confronting the sin in our own hearts, the idolatry in our own hearts. As Jesus taught, we need to remove the log from our own eye before we can remove the speck from our brother's eye. And so does our character match our confrontation? Are we living such honorable lives in the church that even when we call out sin, even when we call out idolatry, that people know we're doing it from a place of humility, from a place of love, from a place of character, from a place of dealing with the sin in our own hearts in order to confront the sin out there in the world. But even then, even as we're growing in this character, even as we're dealing with our own sin, none of that is a guarantee to protect us from persecution, from the consequences that naturally come from a proclamation that includes confrontation. Because John's righteousness, it protected him for a time. But ultimately, he was still taken and executed. And so that brings us to our second point this morning. First, John's confrontation. And then secondly, John's execution in verses 21 through 29. I was struck this week in my study as I was uh, reading one commentator who pointed out the fact that there are actually two passion narratives in the book of Mark. There are actually two passion narratives in the book of Mark. And what we mean by that when we talk about a passion narrative is it's a narrative about the, the execution, the death, the martyrdom uh, of a follower or of a man of God or of a uh, person in the Bible, right? So we have two passion narratives in the book of Mark. You know, we're given uh, at the end of the gospel, we're given the crucifixion of Christ, the passion of Christ, his last week, his death, his resurrection, but here in Mark 6, we're given the passion of John. We're given a, a record of John's execution. And it is a disturbing and gruesome and unjust scene. Because remember, Herodias, she's been holding a grudge against John because of his uh, confrontation, because of his calling out the sin of Herod and Herodias. She's been holding a grudge against him, and Herod's been protecting him. But finally, an opportunity comes on Herod's birthday. Herod, he, on his birthday, gives this big banquet for his inner circle, for his military leaders, for the important men in Galilee. He's throwing this huge party. And during this party, Herodias, she enacts a scheme uh, to get her revenge on John. And what the scheme is, is she has her daughter, Herodias' daughter, comes in and dances before Herod and his men. And the setup of this dance and the consequences of it lead us to believe that Herodias was probably the one who initiated this, who instigated it, who planned this dance, who used her own daughter in her scheme against John. And Mark, he doesn't give us too many details about the kind of dance that Herodias' daughter performs. But what he does tell us was that the dance so pleased Herod 
that he promised Herodias' his daughter and said, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Herod was so pleased by his stance that in front of all of his men, he makes a vow to Herodias' his daughter says, Whatever you want, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, likely Herod's not literally saying, Hey, I'll give you half the kingdom. This was probably a proverb, a proverbial statement of generosity that just meant like, hey, I will give you whatever you want. I will give you as much as I can possibly give you because you've so pleased me. That's the vow, the promise that Herod makes to Herodias' daughter. And so the girl, she goes back to her mother and she asks her for that, what should she ask for? And Herodias, in in her scheming way, she says, the head of John the Baptist. And so Herodias' daughter, she returns to Herod and says, Give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so we see here, Mark, he's not pulling his punches in recording this account. He's not hiding the brutality, the deviousness, the, uh, the gruesomeness of this scheme against John. And we read these details today, and we're kind of shocked by them. But for Mark's early readers, many of whom were experiencing themselves gruesome and intense persecution, these kind of details would have been familiar. This was the reality they were living in, that their proclamation of the gospel often led to this kind of brutal persecution. And so this is the scene Mark records for us, the circumstances, the scheme that leads to John's death. And Herod, he is distressed when he gets this request. Because remember, he doesn't want to kill John. He doesn't want to harm John. But he's just made a vow, and he's made a vow in front of all his guys. He's made a vow in front of his inner circle, the most important people in the region. And so he's backed into a corner. He's trapped. He can't back out. And so he tells the executioner to go and carry out the execution. And John is beheaded, and his head is brought back on a platter to Herodias' daughter, and she gives it to her mother. And then when the disciples hear of it, John's disciples... They go and they take John's body and they place it in a tomb. And so ends this first passion narrative in Mark's gospel. It's a brutal scene. It's a dark scene. It's a gruesome scene. And so the question is, what are we to make of this? What is Mark doing here? Well, I think Mark, he's doing two things by including this narrative. The first is historical and the second is theological. Firstly, he is recording historically a historical, he's recording a historical account of the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was this major figure in the early church who preceded Christ, who opens the gospel, he includes in his gospel a record of what happened to John. So the early Christians, the early church would know what happened to John the Baptist. But Mark, he's not just recording history here, he's making a point theologically a point about discipleship, about proclamation. By inserting this narrative where he does, he is laying the groundwork for a theme that he is going to uh, unfold throughout the rest of his gospel. Because remember the context. Remember where this narrative is placed. It's placed right in the middle of Jesus sending out his disciples to proclaim and then his disciples returning in verse 30. That's the context. And remember that the disciples, they were sent to proclaim repentance just like John was. They were out proclaiming repentance. In John's narrative, it shows us not only that this gospel proclamation will include confrontation, but this account also shows us that this proclamation and this confrontation can also lead to execution. 
a few chapters ago, when Jesus, or a few verses ago, when Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he prepared them for the reality of rejection. He told them to expect to be rejected by different cities, to shake the dust off their feet when they leave these cities that have rejected them. He told them to expect reject them. And here in Mark 6, by inserting the narrative of John's death, uh, Mark is also telling his readers not to be surprised when the mission of Christ also leads not just to rejection, but to execution. Not just to persecution or imprisonment, but to actual death. And remember, for Mark's early readers, for many of them, this was their reality. That if they proclaimed the gospel, if they confronted sin, if they confronted the idols around them, there was a good chance that they would face uh, execution at the hands of Nero or the Roman Empire or someone else. This was their reality, that proclamation, which includes confrontation, could lead to execution. John, he was the first proclaimer of repentance in Mark, and then Jesus goes on the scene, and he proclaims repentance, and then the disciples are sent out to proclaim repentance. And this account of John's execution, it tells us both in its content and its context to be on the lookout that anyone who proclaims repentance, it doesn't end well for them. Be on the lookout for those who proclaim repentance to be executed, to be killed, or to be cast out in some way. And so what Mark is doing here is he's building a theme that's going to reach its climax, its high point at the hinge point in the book of Mark in two chapters in chapter 8. Where when we get to chapter 8, we'll see Jesus uh, is once again addressing questions about his identity. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, they repeat the words of uh, Mark 6.15. They say, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. But when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Then Peter responds, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And so finally in Mark 8, the disciples start to get it. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed, uh, promised Savior and King from God. But they don't fully see what Jesus' role as Messiah truly means. Because just as uh, John's conflict with Herod and Herodias led him uh, to be executed, so too will Jesus' conflict with the scribes, with the Pharisees, with the spiritual forces of evil, with sin in the world, so too will his conflict, his confrontation, lead to his execution. And Jesus tells his disciples this in Mark 8, 31. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then Jesus takes us far, farther in Mark 8, 34, where he calls the crowd to himself with his disciples, and he declares, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who would, for who would ever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. See, Jesus, he's telling his disciples that his mission as the Christ, as the Messiah, will mean that he will be rejected, he will be arrested, he will be executed, and then he will rise again. And he tells them that following him means taking up your own cross, embracing your own execution, laying your own life down, just as Jesus did. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so as we see this, as we see Mark building this theme through his gospel, what it tells us is that in Mark 6, John the Baptist is once again paving the way for Jesus. 
John's proclamation, his confrontation, his execution, it prefigures the proclamation and the confrontation and the execution that Christ himself will experience. Because like John, Jesus too is going to be arrested based on the schemes of those he has confronted and offended. Like John, Jesus too will be sentenced to death by a ruler who would prefer not to kill him but who's backed into a corner by those over which he rules. Like John, Jesus too will have his execution carried out, and he will be laid in a tomb by those who followed him. But there's a key difference there between John and Jesus. John is laid in a tomb, and he stays there. Jesus is laid in a tomb, and he doesn't stay there. Jesus is laid in a tomb, and on the third day, he rises again. He promises disciples in Mark 8 that he will be arrested, he will be uh, crucified, he'll be killed, but then on the third day he will rise again. When we get to the end of Mark's gospel, we get to chapter 16, uh, we get to Easter Sunday, and we see that sure enough, Jesus' promise comes true. He was executed, he was killed, he was laid in a tomb, but then he rose again. You see, John, who was a prophet, who confronted sin and he was killed for it, But Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came not just to confront sin, but to defeat sin, who confronted sin and gained victory over it, even through his execution. Jesus was killed in his confrontation with sin. He was crucified, but then he rose again. And so we see that his death, his execution, was actually the very means by which he gained victory over death and sin and evil. See, the grief of John's execution, this unjust, gruesome scene, it leads us to long for one who will win his confrontation with sin, who will be victorious over the forces of death and evil. And the rest of Mark's gospel is a declaration, is a proclamation that this perfect victor has come, and that he's the one that John pointed to. He's the one whom John baptized. And it is only in light, then, of the resurrection of Christ, of his victory over death, of his victory through death, that we can make sense of Christ's call to take up our own crosses, to embrace our own execution, whether that's uh, relational execution, social execution, uh, cultural execution, political execution, or even physical execution. We can lay down our own lives for the sake of the gospel Because we know that in Christ we have a living hope. That's what we read this morning. That's what Marge read in 1 Peter. We didn't even plan that. She just read that. That we have a living hope. Listen again to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3-6. through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Remember when Peter writes about those various trials, he's not just writing about a flat tire or uh, getting sick or an inconvenience at work. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about execution. He's talking about death. 
He says, you have been grieved by various trials, but in this you rejoice, that you have a living hope, that in Christ we have a inheritance that is imperishable, that is uh, undefiled, that is unfading. Because our hope is in the one who is alive, who was executed for us in our place and who rose again in victory over sin, in victory over death. And so the reason that we can take up our crosses, the reason that we can uh, lose our lives in order to save it is because we have a living hope in Christ, because we have an imperishable inheritance that can never be taken away, uh, that, that can never be lost, no matter how intense or how gruesome the persecution we face becomes. And so in Christ, in this living hope, we have the resources, we have the strength, we have the power to embrace a, a proclamation that includes confrontation, even at the risk or even at the cost of execution. In this living hope, we can do the work of putting our own sin to death, of dealing with the idols in our own hearts, so that we can go and call out the sin and idolatry all around us to point others to this unfading, imperishable hope in Christ. And so in Christ, we can take up our crosses. We can lay down our lives socially, culturally, economically, politically, even physically for the sake of the gospel. We can know that no matter what consequences or executions or persecutions we face on account of this proclamation, we know that we have a hope that can never be taken away, that no matter how troubling or hard or painful these uh, persecutions or these consequences are, they can never remove our living hope in Christ. And so in this hope, will we be a people? Will we be a church who takes up our crosses? Who, like John, speaks truth to power, first of all, the power of sin in our own hearts? Will we go and embrace a proclamation that includes confrontation, even if it means execution? Will we take up our crosses and follow him? Because as the missionary Jim Elliot famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that even though we were lost in sin, even though we were far from you, that you sent your Son to endure the execution that we deserved to show us and reveal to us the idols, the sin in our own hearts, to confront us with our own sins so that in him we could find true life, we could find a living hope, we can find forgiveness and acceptance and adoption. So Lord, help us to live out of this living hope. Give us the strength to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, to call people to repentance and faith, to lovingly and humbly and graciously point out the sins around us, point out the idols in people's lives, but first help us to deal with the idols in our own hearts, to put them to death in response to your grace and your mercy in Christ, Lord. Help us to be a church that lives out this living hope, that goes out and proclaims, that goes out and, pro and confronts, that goes out and embraces even execution together for the sake of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Please stand and we'll sing one final song together. Mm -hmm.
go. Let's just stand for a word of benediction. Just one verse, uh, once again, from 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let